This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Qatar's sports washing FIFA World Cup seems to have backfired in PR terms this week. And a spotlight only works if it makes you look better, not worse. And you'd have to say it pretty much has gone to shit in so many ways. And they're rubbish at football. But Qatari controversy and the actual football has taken the heat off world football's corrupted governing body, which allowed all this to happen. This week, Media Watch talks to a whistleblower who turned into a publisher to get that story out. If you want to bring attention to issues, you have to be prepared to make yourself extraordinarily unpopular, put yourself out there and raise these issues in the media. But first, this week, cranky commentators here have condemned the latest global climate policy summit in Egypt, COP27, as a flop. But was that a cop-out that missed the point? This is the first time a government minister has visited Ukraine since the war began in February. In some of them you can see the points of the bullets. Pina Henare making multiple stops across Irping, a city half an hour out of Kiev. I asked how many people were here and they said 100,000. Within a matter of weeks they had evacuated 95% of the population. That was TVNZ's Europe correspondent May Heron on One News last weekend, reporting on the visit of our Defence Minister to Ukraine, the first official visit by any representative of our government since the Russian invasion there, and no simple trip. Today's schedule has been tightly controlled, tightly managed, with high security. Don't forget we are still in a war zone here. Last August, Today FM's Tova O'Brien went to Ukraine too, with funding from New Zealand on air, which kept the purpose of that trip secret for the same sort of security reasons. And after interviewing President Zelensky, Tova O'Brien urged our Prime Minister to make the trip too. And last Tuesday, her morning radio rival Mike Hosking said that the Prime Minister should have done that by now. What was weird about that trip, though, was he was our first representative to visit the country. Why? And as a result, he was met by some underling, when really the person you want to meet, of course, is Zelensky. Why has our Prime Minister not met Zelensky? And Mike Hosking also went on to say we have an international obligation to play a bigger part in Ukraine's war. It's imperative, as it has been from day one, to be on the right side of history, and we barely are. Our contribution is timid, it is small, it is reluctant. Well, this week, Today FM's Rachel Smalley was beating the same drum about the Prime Minister. How do you think that will be viewed? Is it acceptable, do you think, to send a Defence Minister and not the Prime Minister? But as Rachel Smalley herself pointed out on Today FM, the Prime Minister had other international business at the time in Asia, including a very significant chat with China's President Xi Jinping. Now that Asian trip and the APEC summit also meant that Ardern wasn't at the COP27 climate talks in Egypt and she copped criticism for that as well from ZB's Mike Hosking. So the climate for now will have to wait because of a cost of living crisis and votes. That trumps another soiree where little, if anything, gets done. Mike Hosking's verdict there on the latest global gathering on climate policy. And when COP27 was winding up, he summed it up for his ZB listeners this week like this. Virtually nothing happened over the past two weeks, so I can sum it up reasonably simply. So they have agreed to the concept of a dedicated loss and damage fund. So just they've they've agreed to the concept. That's all they've agreed to. Uh, They haven't worked out who pays for it, how much is in it, how it gets distributed, who would get what. Nothing. Just as an idea, do we sort of kind of agree with it? Yes, that was it. That was your two weeks worth of negotiation. Well, Mike Hosking was right there. There was no agreement yet over what should count as loss and damage caused by climate change. 
or which countries and disasters actually qualify for the compensation. But it's still a significant agreement because some UN and Development Bank funding that already helps states facing loss and damage from climate change is not officially earmarked for that. And while the likes of the US and the EU have so far resisted the argument that rich countries should pay because of their emissions in the past, they changed their position at COP27. Mike Hosking didn't mention any of that, though, when he asked his audience this. If you give people money that have suffered from climate change, does that in any way, shape or form address climate change? Or does it just say, soz, have some money? It's the weirdest thing. But actually, it's the same thing. And while some climate funding has gone towards adaptation and mitigation of future impacts, loss and damage funding is for damage that countries cannot avoid or adapt to. The COP27 agreement also calls for the funds to come from several sources rather than just relying on the rich nations to pay up. And while that didn't seem to impress Mike Hosking, the idea was welcomed by countries that the COP27 summit identified as particularly vulnerable. Tuvalu's finance minister, Sebi Painui, said this to RNZ Pacific. We have been calling for this fund for these past three decades. So it has been a long time coming. And finally, this COP has delivered what we have been calling for many, many years. As we heard earlier, Mike Hosking told his listeners we have an international responsibility to Ukraine and we need to be on the right side of history on that struggle. But on climate change funding, in his words, the world doesn't give a monkeys what we do. Nothing wrong with highfalutin ideals. Just don't run yourself bankrupt in the process and don't delude yourself that the actions of a minuscule little island at the bottom of the world makes one jot of difference to anyone. Now that reference to bankruptcy was what Mike Hosking said could be the effect of charging farmers for agricultural emissions under the Hewaka Ekenoa Climate Plan. And last week, on the last day of feedback for that, Jamie Mackay, the host of News Talk ZB's farmer-friendly rural show The Country, told ZB listeners this. As the groundswell guy said on the, on the um, steps of Parliament today, what's the use of this if it drives 20% of sheep and beef farmers uh, off their farms or out of production? You know, yeah. uh, it's the old story. Do we starve or do we fry? Which, is, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? But charging for agricultural emissions is not really an either-or matter of freezing or frying or a chicken-and-egg situation. Indeed, if the climate gets too hot, it's fried egg and fried chicken and fried farms. But there, Jamie Mackay was talking to ZB's drive host Heather Duplessy-Ellen, who, just like Mike Hosking, also reckons our contribution to the Climate Change Loss and Damage Fund and COP27 itself was a waste of time and New Zealand taxpayers' money. We've got loads of money, so that's why we could do that anyway. So as I say, COP is a flop, absolutely. Now, it's not just News Talk ZB hosts who've been questioning whether big international gatherings on climate policy are really still effective. On RNZ's Morning Report, for example, University of Otago professor and climate finance and energy expert Ivan Diaz-Rainey told Tim Hill this. I think these conferences are, and these commitments are becoming less relevant and investors and, and the energy sector are starting to, to, to deliver transition. Whether it's fast enough to, to stop dangerous climate change is another question. But it is, of course, still governments and international bodies which set the rules and the boundaries within which those businesses operate. Hence, emissions charging for agriculture here. And Heather Duplessis-Allen on News Talk ZB seemed to think that this government had committed the country's last $20 million to that climate loss and damage fund at the cost of other national needs. 
For instance, interviewing a Hawke's Bay District Councillor last week about new homes being built on a flood-prone plain, Heather Duplessy-Allen said this. Kind of ironic because James Shaw just a few days ago announced $15 million to help other countries adapt to climate change, but he might need to announce $15 million to help us adapt to climate change at this particular suburb in Hawke's Bay. So I tell you what, if it's flood-prone, spend some of that money here, James. Thanks very much. And she went on to say that money for that loss and damage fund should go to hiring nurses. And then the next day, she said early childhood education teaching was underfunded because of it. Giving money to countries on the other side of the world to be able to deal with climate change. How about you put some money into our kids? Because they need it. But when Heather Duplessy-Allen talked about COP27 with someone who was actually there, business journalist Rod Oram, he told her she was wrong to claim New Zealand was in the leading pack of countries responding to climate change. Yeah, we're progressing really fast on things that are very important to us, like farming and agriculture. And then you look across the world, and it's just, it's had a wall. And it's really hard to get people on board here, isn't it? Um, New Zealand is a laggard. We've got all the structure in place, you know, Zero Carbon Act, Climate Mm. Change Commission, everything else. We're not reducing emissions. There are countries that are reducing emissions far, far faster than that. But are they the important countries, Rod? Yes, they are. Uh, The US is going to um, hit its targets of emissions reductions by 2030. The EU has increased its goal um, for 2030. Seriously, Heather, we are going backwards in New Zealand. I want to make that completely clear. And the same day, in the business hour of her show... We're ranking 38 out of 58 countries for our environmental, social and governance reporting. And Heather Duplessy-Allen seemed surprised to hear KPMG's Ian Proudfoot say New Zealand was behind in this as well. What we're not doing is moving as fast as the countries we trade with, you know, the countries that talent comes to from New Zealand. However, the same day last week, Heather Duplessy-Allen told her listeners she had a bit of a win, tipping off the New Zealand Herald that repairs to the Oriental Bay Cycleway near where she lives in Wellington needed repairs costing $90,000. Can't even tell you how proud I am of myself to have created a newspaper story in the national newspaper. Now this week, TVNZ One News host Melissa Stokes struck a very different note on cycling and the climate and environment in a series of reports presented in part on her bike. And park the car, get on your bike and help save the climate, part two of our cycling series. And the following day, Today FM's Rachel Smalley reported back on an epiphany after having her first go on an e-bike. If you're in a bit of a grind, if you're a bit overwhelmed, if you're in a frump, just do what you can to get outside. That's what the last week's taught me. Take life outside, people. Get out in nature, breathe the air, empty the mind, soak it in. This really is the greatest country in the world. On TBNZ's Sunday show last weekend, reporter Tamati Rimini Sprout was in Moiraki reporting thoughtfully on land and marine life at risk from rising sea levels and warming water, and coastal communities and marae at greater risk too, which ended like this. Now, Te Runanga o Ngaitahu launched its climate change action plan earlier this year. The iwi is aiming for net zero emissions by 2050, a full embrace of renewable energy, protection of its mahinga kai or food resources, and a more resilient future for whānau. And before that, in the same programme, Sunday's Kristen Hall reported on younger Kiwis apparently choosing not to have babies because of the climate-changed kind of planet they fear they'll have to live in. Is there any kind of tangible change that could happen that would make you comfortable with having your own children? I can't see it where we are right now. But on the same Sunday show, there was also some less convincing content about sustainable housing, a three-minute spot hosted by Sunday journalist John Hudson. This is Business for Better, brought to you by Kiwi Bank. 
proving sustainability and profitability can go hand in hand. Now, if you were watching Sunday on TBNZ1 last weekend, you'd have seen that during the show. And online, that sponsored content is on the show's page under the heading, This is Kiwi. But this is actually advertising. And if TBNZ becomes a new public media entity next year, it's surely in the public interest to stop stuff masquerading as current affairs like that. Now, also on TV last week, Prime screened episode one of a three-part series called Brave New Zealand World, exploring how climate change and other threats could snuff humanity out. Climate change is an existential threat to us as human beings. What are we doing to our planet and New Zealand? An existential risk is one that actually threatens the survival of humanity. We know that if the nuclear winter comes, we freeze, we join the rest of you. Are we our own worst enemy? A challenging watch, though, if you missed it, it's only available now on Sky Go, the subscriber-only streaming service of Prime TV's owner Sky, even though you already paid for Brave New World via New Zealand On Air. Now, there have been no problems hearing for free, though, the opinions of the News Talk ZB hosts on climate change policy lately, and any government attempts to address it, both here and globally at forums like COP27. A century ago, foreign ministers from all over the world spent up to six months in Paris at the peace conference trying to hammer out a way to avoid another world war. If they had talked radio back then, imagine the criticism the delegates would get for their train travel and the catering. Last weekend here on Media Watch, we looked at how the 2022 Football World Cup was about to begin in the tiny Gulf state of Qatar, which was obviously ill-suited to the task, but had persuaded football's world governing body FIFA otherwise back in 2010. Qatar's rulers have spent a fortune on preparing for it since then, but not on the wages of migrant workers or their health and safety. About 6,000 of them have reportedly died building the stadiums since then. But why spend all that money, effort and workers' lives? Well, in a word, sports washing, using a major tournament to project the image of the country as a modern and fun place to the rest of the world with the help of the media. So how's that sports washing going? From accusations of corruption in the bidding process to the treatment of migrant workers who built the stadiums where many lost their lives. Homosexuality is illegal here. Women's rights and freedom of expression are in the spotlight. There's a tournament to be played one that will be watched and enjoyed around the world. Stick to football, say FIFA. Well, we will, for a couple of minutes at least. And while BBC viewers in the UK were watching that, and then an interview with Amnesty International about human rights in Qatar, the opening ceremony was only available from the BBC online. The commercial UK broadcaster ITV didn't show the opening ceremony either, and one of their main presenters, the former captain of Ireland, Roy Keane, told ITV viewers this. The World Cup shouldn't be here. It shouldn't be here. The corruption regarding FIFA. We've got a country the way they treat migrant workers, gay people. And that's got to be, I think it's great that it's been brought up. They shouldn't have the World Cup here. You can't treat people like that. And you don't often hear presenters trashing the very product that their own networks have spent millions to show. On the podcast The News Agents, veteran political journalist John Sopel told his co-host Emily Maitlis that Qatar might now just have buyer's remorse. I had the most fascinating conversation this weekend with someone who has worked closely with the Qataris throwing a completely different light on what they now think in Qatar and it is broadly 
Why on earth have we bothered? We spent two hundred billion pounds on this. We are vilified over LGBTQ rights. We are attacked for being corrupt over the manner in which we got the World Cup. We are seen as kind of Victorian in the labour laws that we have and the way that guest workers have been treated. Nothing good has come to us. They were anonymously rich. They had wealth. They had gas supplies. They they quietly got on with things in a sort of Western-friendly way. And now they've blown it all up. And you'd have to say it pretty much has gone to shit in so many ways. And they're rubbish at football. <laughs> and, and, uh... and not only was Qatar's team not much good in Game 1, as they said, on Wednesday, the tournament even provided a platform for their big rivals in the region, Saudi Arabia, who engineered one of the most memorable upsets ever in world football by beating Lionel Messi's Argentina. So money can't buy Qatar everything, it seems. Well, the spotlight on Qatar and its issues has definitely taken the heat off FIFA, which is now under new management. The old management had to go because of the exposure of that corruption. One of only two insiders ever to blow the whistle on FIFA is Bonita Merciades. Now, when she worked for Australia's Football Association, it too was bidding to host the 2022 World Cup. A waste of time, as it turned out, because Qatar already had it in the bag. But in the process, she saw things that she didn't want normalised, and she published the allegations herself, first online, and then in a book called Whatever It Takes, and she went on to start her own company, Fair Play Publishing. This week, I asked her how she went about lifting the lid on FIFA's corruption and if the media now would keep up its scrutiny on Qatar during this World Cup. There's been a small band of media that has maintained an interest and maintained the pressure on these issues for the best part of a decade. And I think some of those will continue to do so. But for most of the sports media, and frankly, most of the football media, particularly in this country, have sort of really only discovered these issues in the past week. Qatar is not going to change because of what some people say at a World Cup tournament, because after all, they haven't changed in the past 12 years. And likewise, FIFA is not going to change because of pressure from fans. The only thing that will make FIFA change is pressure from broadcasters and sponsors. Yeah, I guess you would have been hoping uh, that this World Cup would have been taking place in Australia because Australia had a bid in and you were part of that as well. If we go back, what was it that turned you uh, into a whistleblower? Well, I think it was basically Australia's conduct in that bid. Um, If Australia had won their 2022 hosting rights, it would have been inappropriate as well. I think one of the best things that happened for world football was for Russia and Qatar to win those votes for 2018 and 2022, respectively, back in 2010, because it made people focus their attention on what the hell was going on at FIFA. If uh, a relatively benign country like Australia had won, no one would have taken any notice and they would have thought it was based on merit, but it wouldn't have been. But certainly uh, from Australia's perspective, we ran a reputational risk and we did things that we ought not to have done in terms of trying to win that vote. But it's good that we are at least focused now on how FIFA is running the, the integrity of their business decisions because that what what, that's what it boils down to, both in terms of how this corrupt process came to be and how we're now playing a World Cup in a country where the normal sorts of rights that you and I and our compatriots take for granted um, are just ignored. Did you find that eventually you had to publish some of your own findings on your own website, first of all, didn't you? Was it perhaps that other media were afraid 
to um, publish, you know, your conclusions that you had to do it yourself? I think the answer to that is both. <laughs> 12 years ago or 10 years ago when these issues were being raised by me and a few others, and I'm, I mean literally a few others around the world, there was no media standing with us in Australia in particular. They were, they were behind us hiding. And I did the right thing. I raised these issues internally several times. And, you know, as with any whistleblower, if you want to bring attention to issues, you have to be prepared to make yourself extraordinarily unpopular and uh, put yourself out there and raise these issues in the media. In terms of people taking notice of them, very few people um, understood that there were broader issues at play. It wasn't just an issue of whether Qatar had a brown paper bag moment or something like that. It was much more strategic than that in terms of Qatar. But what was really at stake was the integrity of FIFA's processes, really the integrity of FIFA's culture and the way they were comfortable with making decisions and the fact that that whole bidding process was set up for the types of things that went on, the swapping of votes, the currying of favours, FIFA allowed that to happen. They knew it would happen. And as with anything, almost like the human rights issue now with FIFA, they just turn a blind eye. Their way of handling it is to turn a blind eye and pretend it's not happening and try to divert your attention with something else. But single-minded journalists like famously Andrew Jennings you know, investigated this sort of stuff for years at FIFA and you know, the IOC, big sports bodies. You, know, you, would, you would think that the media should be alive to... Uh, the possibility of similar types of stories uh, and these sorts of things recurring. It, it, does it disappoint you that they didn't seem to have the appetite for uh, what you'd uncovered? It was disappointing, and I have to say Andrew, who passed away in January this year, sadly, um, was a giant um, amongst journalists in this area, and he was a great friend of mine and also a mentor to some extent. The smock group of journalists who earn a living from football um, from having contacts and having networks and that's their bread and butter. So there's very little appetite for anything that would be about the issues within football. That is left to some extent to what I would call the, the non, well, non-sporting journalists, the investigative journalists. So in a, in a country like Australia, I, I would put it down to that. These people have to make a living and they make a living by having these networks with those who run football within their country. It's very different in countries like um, the UK and Germany and France where they have very well-developed uh, football media and one journalist can range across a, a whole range of issues. I mean, you mentioned Andrew Jennings. He was very much a specialist in sports investigative journalism. Jens Weinreich from Germany is very much a specialist in sports investigative journalism. So it's a very much more sophisticated and broader market um, in terms of, of football media overseas. Well, you took part recently in a fascinating uh, discussion for the Global Investigative Journalism Network about investigating FIFA and big sports bodies. And that was one of the points you made was look at the top brass and the important officials and where they go and who they hang out. Uh, but another uh, thing that's on the list here is to re-examine the evidence that's in plain sight, like photos and annual reports, things published by uh, national sporting bodies. Is that part of what led you to the uh, discoveries that you made? Yes, it is. I mean, because I didn't have the resources of a media house, so I just spent an awful lot of time looking at publicly available information. And sometimes you can go down a rabbit hole and it comes to nothing, and other times it does come to something. You know, for example... 
within CAS, you know, the Court of Arbitration for Sport, there was a case in around about 2013, 2014, where a person from Africa who was known to be a known fixer for football, um, who had been approached by three of the countries bidding for the 2022 World Cup to see what it would take to make the African, four African voters, or really three African voters, um, vote for them in the 2022 vote. Now, he named those countries as being Australia, South Korea and Qatar. Um, and that coincides from the Australian perspective, that coincides with everything I know. And it also then coincided with what came out later from the Garcia report that was done by FIFA, in which the president of the Cameroon Football Association said, well, yes, he was approached by Australia and he thought, you know, what the hell were they doing this for? And that was on a public website, but no one had noticed it. It was in French. and I went to the trouble of getting the really relevant paragraphs professionally translated, and it was there in in plain sight for everyone to see. So there is still a whole lot of stuff that takes place behind closed doors where, as I always refer to it, there are deals, double deals and counter deals. And when you have that happening, uh, you can't have a truly transparent and accountable process. Culture starts at the top, as we know. Until we can change culture, it doesn't matter what they do to process, um, nothing's going to change. That was Bonita Merciadis, a former official who exposed corruption in football's world governing body, which played a part in the World Cup ending up controversially in Qatar right now. And she told the tale in a lid-lifting book called Whatever It Takes and started her own publishing company, Fair Play Publishing, to do it. And you can hear more about all that in the online version of the story. It's on the RNZ website. Just look for the title, Blowing the Whistle on World Cup Corruption. Back in July last year, Hawke's Bay Today newspaper revealed that close to $3 million that was seized as proceeds of crime was to be used for a new marae-based rehabilitation initiative called Kahukura. Now, this was to be run by Hard to Reach, a consultancy that was founded by mongrel mob honorary life member Harry Tam, and mob members in Hawke's Bay would be key leaders of the program. And the goal of it was to reduce crime and harm from methamphetamine dependency, especially amongst gang members, which other rehab programs had found especially hard to engage. And the wisdom of funding rehab via gang-run schemes was a hot topic on the media for quite a while. Why can they give the mongrel mob $2.7 million and not blink an eye. They don't want to know about us when, it, when we have problems in the South Island, like the flooding and that. What did they get down there? Peanuts. It was a South Otago farmer at a groundswell protest at the time who reacted badly to those revelations in July last year. Now, it turned out it was actually the health ministry which had applied for the funding for the scheme, but at the time, opposition political parties claimed the government was funding gangs. Who signed off $2.75 million to the Mungle Mob in Hawke's Bay to run a, um, a meth uh, rehabilitation program when, you know, the money's going straight out the back door to run the um, meth production uh, units all, all the way through the Hawke's Bay. That was National Party police spokesperson Mark Mitchell last year, after which his colleague Simeon Brown, MP, said he'd draft the bill to ensure no public money would ever be handed to any gang. Now, at that point, the Prime Minister was happy to point out that all this was based on a programme that was given a green light when National was in power in the late 2000s. 
a methamphetamine program uh, that is currently being supported. That program uh, is based on a program that has been around since 2010, which the then national government was happy to support. I see this as politics. The Haora Initiative ran from 2009 to 2017, run by the notorious chapter leadership of the mongrel mob and the Salvation Army. An independent evaluation of it in 2016 found significantly reduced drug use among the participants across all those years. But last week, Stuff Papers Up and Down the Country ran a story in which Hawke's Bay reporter Marty Sharp reported that papers released under the OIA showed that the current Kahukura program still hasn't had its effectiveness evaluated. And the story also said a Ministry of Justice assessment this year found that two-thirds of those who'd completed the program reported back that they still used methamphetamine, although most said they used less than before. Marty Sharp also reported for stuff anecdotal and self-reported evidence of reduced methamphetamine use and increased employment. One third of participants reported no use of meth at all in the 6 to 12 months since the programme and two thirds reported better health and 10 out of 22 unemployed participants had since found work. And also there were no suicides among participants. Now, the interim director of addictions at Te Whatu Ora Health New Zealand, Peter Calder, then told staff these were early indicators of positive results for the programme. And when rival paper Hawke's Bay Today picked up the story, it began like this. The gang-based healing project has passed the halfway stage with some positive indicators, despite some participants admitting they had used methamphetamine since graduating from their 10-week course. And it was that last bit that got the media's attention elsewhere. Heather Duplessy-Ellen on News Talk ZB, for example, told her listeners this. The Mongrel Mob P programme in the Hawke's Bay that the government gave $2.75 million to isn't working. What a surprise. It's been running for a year. They've had 22 people complete the program in the first two intakes. Two-thirds of those people say that they're still using pee. But had she not seen those positive stats reported in those news stories? I mean, the good news is most of them say they're using less pee than they used to, but, you know, they're still using pee. That's a twist no one saw coming, is it? The program didn't work. However, relapsing doesn't necessarily mean a rehabilitation program has failed its participants or was a failure itself. Indeed, the 2016 evaluation of the Salvation Army mongrel mob joint program Haora made that pretty clear. Now this week, Harry Tam put out a statement slamming inaccurate and misleading reporting of Kahukura in which he said this. The remaining Kahukura graduates who have not yet won their battle against methamphetamine should not be seen as failures by those uninterested in the complexities of addiction. But given the evident public and political concern about the proceeds of crime funding gang-run drug rehab programmes, isn't it fair enough for media to report on those results? Our concern was the headline in particular, where it highlighted two-thirds of the um, order had used meth. Now, anyone that knows anything about rehab, you know, if you can achieve one-third of your client group not relapsing, that's, that's a remarkable result, and the re- research supports that. And also having a 100% graduation rate, and again, there aren't too many rehabs that can boast that. The, the, the headline, while it's factually correct, is what it implies, and, and you can see that implication has had its desired effect. And, and like you say, other media have picked it up and have jumped to that conclusion that it wasn't working. By all means, the, the, most of the article was factually correct. However, the headline was mischievous in the way that the, the article didn't provide context. 
interestingly, when the story went in the actual stuff papers uh, on in print, uh, the headline was more about uh, that the program had yet to be fully evaluated. Now, when there was the first controversy that got all kind of party political about the way this was being funded. That that point was made. Look, you know, don't be concerned, you know, about, about the misuse of public money. There, there will be accountability and so on. So if a reporter does use the OIA and find out there are some preliminary, you know, self-reported results uh, for evaluation, isn't that fair enough that the, that the media should do that? Yes, the evaluation thing is important, but it conveys it was the, the ministries that was raising that issue. And, and the fact is, when he got those reports, they were reports from us, from H2R Research and Consultant Limited, and we were frustrated that the ministry hadn't engaged an evaluator to evaluate the program. Our reports that we we're obliged to give to the proceeds of crime people, and it was in those reports that we continually asked the ministry to get on with the evaluation. So the evaluation component was actually part of the contract that was budgeted for us to engage an evaluator. But because of the political furore that took place at the time, the ministry took that budget off us and said they will um, facilitate the, the evaluation. Of course, they haven't done that as quickly as they should have done. At least now they do have a evaluator that they've, they've engaged. But it doesn't look like that evaluation is going to be complete until two years later. Of course, our program finishes next year. Mm, so is your concern then that the only reports the public will get about uh, the relative success uh, of or failure of the program will be the preliminary sort of findings that you, you yourself at Hard to Reach have had to, it's only that that people will see via reports like this when journalists inquire that people are going to read before it comes to an end? Yeah, so we've done all we can to try and get that evaluation underway as early as possible. And it's unfortunate that the ministry basically dragged the chain on it. And they now have an evaluator they've contracted to, to do the evaluation. Would you accept, though, that for members of the public who are interested in this, they might have heard about the controversy a year ago, being uncomfortable with the idea of proceeds of crime then going to a gang-led programme? You know, they'd have a public interest, a legitimate public interest in uh, journalists inquiring into whatever results there are about the success of the or failure of the programme? Well, I think that's absolutely important, but please convey it in a way that, that it actually um, reflects the reality of it. Having two-thirds that have relapsed in, in a drug rehab, particularly with meth, you know, is not a bad result, but to, to convey it in a way without providing any context, it would suggest that it's failing. So unless you actually know what the research is around uh, re relapse and, and drug rehabilitation, you'll think, oh, well, two-thirds is not a good outcome. The other thing is that you've got to remember that our program is only an eight-week residential program and we have an eight-week follow-up. Other programs, uh, they run anywhere between eight to 12 months. So ours is like, in terms of value for money, um, if we can keep the, get those results and if we can substantiate that with an um, evaluation, I think we're doing really, really well. That's Harry Tam, Mongrel Mob Life member and the boss of Hard to Reach, the outfit overseeing the Kahukura Drug Rehabilitation Programme, which uses the proceeds of crime to rehabilitate drug associates with addictions and which re-emerged in the news, as we heard there, last week. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media with Midweek Media Watch after the 10pm news next Wednesday, talking to Karen Hay on nights. And back again with Media Watch at the same time next weekend, here on RNZ National.